there in the course and he said it didn't matter men or women I'm not sure I'm comfortable with all this gender fluidity <laughs> Genesis chapter 44 we're going to read for our scripture reading chapter 44 and uh, 45 chapter 44 and 45 and uh, of course we're in the life of Joseph chapter 44 verse 1 Joseph commanded his stu steward fill the men's bags with as much food as they can carry and put each one's silver at the top of his bag Put my cup, the silver one, at the top of the youngest one's bag, along with the silver for his grain. So he did as Joseph told him. By the way, did all the kids get their questions? Did any of you get your questions? Want to make sure they have their questions to fill out if they want to get a prize next week. Because <clears throat> the answer to the first question is in the first two verses. <laughs> verse 3, verse 3, chapter 44, verse 3. At morning light, the men were sent off with their donkeys. They had not gone very far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, Get up, pursue the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Isn't this the cup that my master drinks from and uses for divination? What have you done? What you have done is wrong. When he overtook them, he said these words to them. They said to him, why does my Lord say these things? Your servants could not possibly do such a thing. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found at the top of our bags. How could we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If it is found with one of us, your servants, he must die and the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. The steward replied, what you have said is right, but only the one who is found to have it will be my slave, and the rest of you will be blameless. So each one quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. The steward searched, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. 
and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and each one loaded his donkey and returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers reached Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell to the ground before him. What have you done, Joseph said to them? Didn't you know that a man like me could uncover the truth by divination? What can we say to my Lord, Judah replied? How can we plead? How can we justify ourselves? God has exposed your servant's iniquity. We are now my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup was found. Then Joseph said, I swear I will not do this. The man in whose possession the cup was found will be my slave. The rest of you can go in peace to your father. But Judah approached him and said, My Lord, please let your servant speak personally to my Lord. Do not be angry with your servant, for you are like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servants, Do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, My Lord, We have an elderly father and a younger brother, the child of his old age. The boy's brother is dead. He is the only one of his mother's sons left and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him to me so that I can see him. But we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. If he were to leave, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, if your younger brother does not come down with you, you will not see me again. This is what happened when we went back to your servant, my father. We reported to him the words of my Lord. But our father said, go again and buy us a little food. We told him, we cannot go down unless our younger brother goes with us. If our younger brother isn't with us, we cannot see the man. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One is gone from me. I said he must have been torn to pieces and I have never seen him again. If you also take this one from me and anything happens to him, you will bring my gray hairs down to Sheol in sorrow. So if I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, his life is wrapped up with the boy's life. When he sees the boy is not with us, he will die. Then your servants will have brought the gray hairs of your father or your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. Your servant became accountable to my father for the boy, saying, If I do not return him to you, I will always bear the guilt for sinning against you, my father, my father's father. Now, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. Let him go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father without the boy? I could not bear to see the grief that would overwhelm my father. Chapter 45. Joseph could no longer keep his composure in front of all his attendants, so he called out, send everyone away from me. No one was with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers, but he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and also Pharaoh's household heard it. 
Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But they could not answer him because they were terrified in his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. And they came near. I am Joseph, your brother, he said, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here, because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there will be five more years without plowing or harvesting. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Return quickly to my father to say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me without delay. You can settle in the land of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and your grandchildren, your flocks, your herds and all you have. There I will sustain you for there will be five more years of famine. Otherwise you, your household and everything you have will become destitute. Look, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin can see that I'm the one speaking to you. Tell my father about all my glory in Egypt and about all you have seen and bring my father here quickly. Then Joseph threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept and Benjamin wept on his shoulder. Joseph kissed each of his brothers as he wept and afterwards his brothers talked with him. When the news reached Pharaoh's palace, Joseph's brothers have come. Pharaoh and his servants were pleased. Pharaoh said to Joseph, tell your brothers, do this, load your animals and go back to the land of Canaan. Get your father and your families and come back to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you can eat from the richness of the land. You are also commanded to tell them, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your dependents and your wives and bring your father here. Do not be concerned about your belongings for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did this. Joseph gave them wagons as Pharaoh had commanded and he gave them provisions for the journey. He gave each of the brothers changes of clothes, but he gave Benjamin 300 pieces of silver and five changes of clothes. He sent his father the following, 10 donkeys carrying the best products of Egypt and 10 female donkeys carrying grain, food and provisions for his father on the journey. So Joseph sent his brothers on their way. And as they were leaving, he said to them, don't argue on the way. So they went up from Egypt and came to father Jacob in the land of Canaan. They said, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. Jacob was stunned, for he did not believe them. But when they told Jacob all that Joseph had said to them, 
And when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to transport him, the spirit of their father was revived. Then Israel said, enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go to see him before I die. Genesis chapter 44 and 45. Uh, now take your Bible and turn to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. Last week, we considered how all of what is in this chapter is prophecy for Daniel. Every bit of it is prophecy in relation to Daniel. But we all saw that for us, much of it is history. We saw how the things that are mentioned here in chapter 11 are connected to the rest of the book of Daniel. And so in this passage, which is essentially chapters 10, 11, and 12, Daniel is not being given totally new information. Rather, he's been giving, he is given information to fill out the things he already knew, to, to fill out what has already been revealed to him. And so this morning, we're just going to scratch the surface in this, on this first section of chapter 11, which I've entitled the Scripture Truth, Scripture of Truth Concerning Gentile Kingdoms. Now, the largest part of this section, we're not going to get to it today, but the largest part of this section runs from verse 3 all the way through the end of the chapter. Okay, this is all about the Gentile nations, but we're not going to get to that. We're only going to get to verses 1 and 2, the first part of it. And uh, as we think about these verses, as we think about them, I want to suggest two things to you that will be helpful in understanding how what Daniel is told here fits into God's plan. First, I think we can look at these verses and understand them according to the basic outline that has been provided to us in chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Okay, so look back at chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. We can see here the basic outline of God's plan, and we can see how chapters 10, 11, and 12 will fit into that. So, let me explain to you what I mean. In verse 24, so now we're in chapter 9, so we're going backwards here a little bit. Now we're in chapter 9, verse 24. Here we have the length of God's plan. We have who the plan is for. We have what's to be accomplished by the time the plan is completed. We have that in verse 24. In verse 25, we have the first phase or phase one of the plan. This is the first 483 years of the plan. It goes from 444 B.C. to A.D. 33. 
from Nehemiah chapter 2 in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, to Matthew chapter 21 and the parallel passages in the other Gospels, Mark 11, Luke 19, John 12. This records for us the triumphal entry of Jesus. So 444 B.C. all the way to A.D. 33. This is covered in verse 25. In verse 26, we have a gap or interruption in the plan. And it covers an undisclosed amount of time. We don't know how long this time is, but it runs from A.D. 33 and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ all the way through A.D. 70 and the destruction of the temple on through to the rapture of the church. Now, we haven't talked about the rapture of the church, really, in this book of Daniel, and uh, we can't prove the rapture from the book of Daniel. So you have to take my word on it right now that this time in verse 26, this gap of time, this interruption in God's plan, runs from AD 33 to whenever Christ comes to rapture his church. In verse 27... We have phase two of God's 490-year plan, and, and we have seven years here in verse 27. This, this phase two starts when the Antichrist makes a covenant with the Jews, and it lasts for seven years. In the middle of that time, the Antichrist is going to persecute the Jews beyond anything they have ever experienced in history, and worse than anyone will ever experience in history. It's the worst persecution in the history of the world. And so this time is going to last that seven years, begins with a covenant made by the Antichrist with the Jewish people, and it ends with God judging the Antichrist. Now, in chapter 11, Almost all of chapter 11, verses 1 through 35, phase 1 of chapter 9, verse 25. Okay, so basically what we're seeing here is almost the entire chapter of chapter 11 takes place during the time, those 483 years of Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. So if you're a person that takes notes, you might want to note that in your Bible. That chapter 11, almost the entire chapter, all the way up to verse 35, takes place during the 483 years of Daniel 9, 25. So that's why we're taking this section of Scripture as our outline, Daniel 9, verses 24 through 27, give us this brief outline where we can understand not only prophecy, but history. Now, that's the first thing. So using Daniel 9, 24 through 27, that's helpful for us understanding chapters 10, 11, and 12. But it's also helpful for us to understand something about ancient history. In order for us to identify the people and events of chapter 11, we have to know something about ancient history. 
Now, this shouldn't be a shock to us. This shouldn't seem strange to us because we know that in order to properly understand any portion of Scripture, we must understand it in its historical context. This not only goes for Scriptures like Joshua and First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, but it also goes for Scripture that is prophecy, understanding when prophecy is fulfilled, understanding the history related to that prophecy. Everything we're going to consider this morning from our point of view, our point of view in 2023, is history. Is history. So knowing the history is important. And for better or worse, whether you like history or not, we have to consider the history to properly understand these passages. Now, here briefly, I want to give you two resources. Well, I'm not going to give you these resources. I'm going to tell you about two resources. Okay, I don't want you to think you're getting a gift at the end of church. Okay, I'm going to tell you about two resources that uh, you would probably find very helpful in understanding the history of the Old Testament and the context of the Old Testament world. The first one is called Bible History and Archaeology. Bible History and Archaeology. The author's name is Homer Heater, Jr. Homer Heater, Jr., Bible History and Archaeology. It's not a very expensive uh, book. It's a paperback, but you would find it very informative when you're talking about the Old Testament world. The second work I'm going to recommend to you is entitled People of the Old Testament World. People of the Old Testament World. It has three editors, a guy named Hertz, another guy named Mattingly, and a guy named Yamauchi. Yamauchi, just think Yamaha, okay? Yamauchi. And it's called People of the Old Testament World. Those two works are done by solid, conservative, evangelical scholars. And they give great insight to what is happening in the world of Daniel and the world after Daniel. So let me recommend those things. Well, now let's go to our text here. Our text this morning. And the first thing I want you to see is we're going to go back to the future. Okay, we're talking about, for Daniel's sake, we're talking about future. Okay, and we're going to go back to the future. So look at verse 1. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 begins, Also in the first year of Darius the Mede. Okay, you see that? Now go back to chapter 10, verse 1. Chapter 10, verse 1. Chapter 10. Verse 1 says, in the third year of Cyrus the king. Cyrus the king. So chapter 10 is the third year of the Persian Empire. And chapter 11, verse 1, it's the first year of the Persian Empire. So you see we're going back to the future. And the reason that we're doing this is because the angelic being that we saw in chapter 10 is recounting, 
He's recounting what happened three years before. Three years before. And so he goes all the way back to 539 B.C., when the Medo-Persian army conquered Babylon and killed Belshazzar the night he saw the handwriting on the wall. So this is the time. The time is 539 B.C. Secondly, letter B there in your outline, notice the speaker's identity. The speaker's identity. Just look at that little phrase in chapter 11, verse 1, that says, I, even I. I, even I. This is connecting chapter 11 back to chapter 10. Because the I here is the angelic being that's described in chapter 10, verses 5 through 6, and who is speaking in chapter 10. Now, last week in Sunday school we had a little bit more of a discussion about the identity of this angelic being. And I told that Sunday school class that I tend to think that the angelic being is Gabriel the angel. Gabriel the angel. I just want to give you some reasons why I think we can identify this angel from chapter 10 and on into chapter 11 who's giving the message of the scripture of truth to Daniel, how we can identify this as probably Gabriel. First, I would point out that Gabriel, the angel, has already been mentioned in the book of Daniel. He's mentioned in chapter 8 and mentioned again in chapter 9. In chapter 8, it goes all the way back to 550 B.C. But in chapter 9... It's the same year that the angel's talking about in chapter 11, verse 1, 539. The angel Gabriel has been speaking to Daniel already. That's the first reason. The second reason I think we can identify this angel as Gabriel is because Gabriel is connected to bringing messages to men from God. He's a messenger from God. In Daniel chapter 8, he gives Daniel the interpretation of the vision of the ram and goat. In Daniel chapter 9, he gives the prophecy of God's 490-year plan for the Jews in Jerusalem. In the New Testament, in Luke chapter 1, verse 19, it is Gabriel who tells Zacharias that he and his wife Elizabeth are going to have a son to prepare the nation for the coming of the Messiah. A few verses later in Luke 1, in verse 26, it is Gabriel who is the one who gives Mary the message that she is going to have a son and call his name Jesus. And I think it's very likely, we're not told this, but I think it's very likely that it is also Gabriel who appears to Joseph, telling him to marry his pregnant fiance, Mary. And then again, telling him to take his family to Egypt and finally telling him to return back to the land of Israel. So the angel Gabriel is seen throughout Scripture 
as one who gives divine messages to men from God. But these messages aren't just any messages. These messages all relate to the Messiah in one way or another. So that's the second reason. He's, uh, Gabriel is the angelic messenger that deals specifically with giving messages about the Messiah and Israel. Thirdly, the message of Daniel 10, 11, and 12 are connected to the message of chapter 9. And since Gabriel is the angel who gives the message in chapter 9, it makes sense that he would also be the angel giving the message in chapters 10, 11, and 12. So because of these three reasons, I think that we can at least tentatively conclude that the angel mentioned here in our passage, in our context, is Gabriel. He gave the message about the first coming of the Messiah, and it seems... From what we read here, he is giving a message that relates to the second coming of the Messiah. So that's the identity of the speaker. Letter C there in your outline, I want us to consider the activity of the speaker, the speaker's activity. The speaker's activity. Back to verse 1. says, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. That's Daniel. And now I will tell you the truth. So the angel is going to do three things for Daniel. He's going to strengthen him, he's going to protect him, and he's going to tell him the truth. The word confirm there in your Bible is the word that means to make strong or to cause to be strong. The angel is going to confirm or cause Daniel to be strong. The next word there in your verse before us is strengthen, strengthen. Uh, this is really saying that the angel will protect Daniel. This word strengthen is the word for fortifying, to fortify, to be a fortress, to be a protection for Daniel. And thirdly, he's going to tell Daniel the truth. He says, now I will tell you the truth. Not only is what the angel going to tell Daniel the truth, but it's absolutely certain. It will absolutely come to pass. He's going to share more details of God's plan for the Jews and Jerusalem. So the reason that the angel is there to strengthen, protect, and tell Daniel the truth is because of the nature of the message that Daniel's about to receive. It, it contains some pretty... Hard, some hard things, things that are pretty hard that will happen to the Jews and Jerusalem during the history covered in this passage. This message will be hard, but it will also contain some pretty fantastic things. God predicts no less than about 10 different kings before they've ever reigned. That's pretty fantastic. He predicts the transfer of rule from one kingdom to another. And he predicts what will happen at the end of times. Pretty fantastic. And so the angel tells Daniel, I'm telling you the truth. This will certainly happen. Now that brings us to verse 2. Verse 2. It's the last verse we're going to cover today. That's going to be a good thing or a bad thing. 
<laughs> but in verse 2, we see the beginning of the message concerning the Gentile kingdoms. This is where God starts to disclose to Daniel through the angel his message about the Gentile kingdom. And in verse 2, the first kingdom, and the only kingdom we're going to cover today, is the kingdom of Persia. The kingdom of Persia. So picking up in our Bibles where it says, Behold, in verse 2. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up against the realm of Greece. Against the realm of Greece. And I want us to see that this message concerning the Gentile kingdoms starts with Persia and starts with Cyrus the Great. At this time in Daniel's life, okay, which is the third year, of the Persian Empire. Okay, remember, in, in chapter 11, the angel's going back two years or three years in history. So he's going back to the first year of the Persian Empire. But in Daniel's life, when he hears this, it's the third year of the Persian Empire, 537 B.C. So at this time in Daniel's life, at 537 B.C., the Medo-Persian Empire is the Gentile king that is ruling the earth. No need to speak about the Babylonian Empire. That empire is in the past. It has just come to an end. We'll see that the empire of Greece comes later. It's even mentioned in this verse. But there's a lot more about the empire of Greece. Verse 3 all the way through 35. A lot more about Greece. And then the empire of Rome is not addressed for the most part. So uh, Daniel's, the angel tells Daniel he's picking up with the Persian empire. Remember, there are four Gentile kingdoms. There's the Babylonian kingdom. There's the Persian kingdom or the Medo-Persian kingdom. There's the kingdom of Greece, and there's the kingdom of Rome, the Roman Empire. There are four Gentile kingdoms, and we're starting with Persia because that's where the angel starts. So it starts with Persia, but it also starts with Cyrus the Great, the first king of the Persian kingdom. Now, how do we know this? How do we know this? Well, look at the verse again. Look at verse 2 again. It says, Behold, three more kings will arise, not including the one who's ruling now. After him, there will be three more kings that arise, and then a fourth, and then a fourth. So this passage, this message starts with Cyrus the Great, the first king of the Persian Empire. That means if you do your math right, if you got your arithmetic down, that means there are five kings of Persia that are included in verse 2. Five kings. Okay, I told you this whole chapter is going to predict at least ten kings. I'm guessing at that. I didn't actually count, but I'm going from memory here. 
Five of them are mentioned here. Four of them are in the future. Okay, so uh, think about this. There's five kings mentioned in our passage. There's Cyrus the Great. There's his son, Cambyses. Now, they're not mentioned by name, but these are the kings referred to. Cambyses, his son, Galmata, Darius, Darius I, and Xerxes, who was also known as Ahasuerus. Now, I think I gave you a chart in your notes. Didn't I give you a chart in your notes? A little box there at the bottom or somewhere in there. So it has them right there. So um, you don't need to write any of that down. You got them right there. You got all their years and everything there. So um, now what's what's particularly of interest to hear, uh, to us here, something that we have to deal with, a criticism that we have to deal with, is there's more than five kings of Persia. History shows us there's more than five kings of Persia. There's at least 12 kings of Persia. So we have to ask the question, why does it only mention these five? Why these five kings being mentioned and not the rest? Well, the answer is that these five kings are the only ones that matter for the message that Daniel is receiving. I mean, that's the short answer. In fact, the first and last are really the two most important. Cyrus the Great and Xerxes are the ones who are the most important because it says, if you look back at your verse, it says at the very end of verse 2, he, that's the uh, fifth Persian king, his name is Xerxes or Ahasuerus, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. So he's going to make war with Greece. Uh, the historian Herodotus, in volume 2, chapter 7 of his work, Histories, tells us that it is the Persian king Xerxes who led a major military campaign against Greece. Now this isn't to say there weren't other kings of Persia who fought against Greece, but Xerxes starts it out. And he leads this campaign against Greece. He stirs up all to go against Greece. Now, that sets the historical context for us about these five kings. This message that Daniel's receiving occurs within the reign of Cyrus the Great. And the last Persian king referred to here in verse 2 is Xerxes or Ahasuerus. Do you recognize the name Ahasuerus? It appears frequently in another book of the Bible in the Old Testament, the book of Esther. This is the king who was king during the book of Esther, Xerxes. Now let me talk about how these kings connect to the Bible, because it's more than just history here. These men connect to the Bible in some way. Cyrus the Great, mentioned 23 times. 23 times in the Old Testament, Cyrus is mentioned. I'm not going to give you those references. You can look them up in a concordance. Okay, I sent out an article earlier this week about a concordance. Look it up in your concordance at home. You'll see Cyrus appears 23 times in your Bible. 
Most importantly, he appears in the book of Isaiah, and there's a prophecy there that Cyrus will be the one who the Lord uses for the rebuilding of the temple and Jerusalem. That is a prophecy given 100 years before Cyrus is even born. 160 years, 160 years before he is king of the Medo-Persian Empire. 160 years before the fulfillment. And so Cyrus is an important figure in Bible prophecy related to the Jews and Jerusalem. He's also mentioned in Daniel two other times, Daniel 1 and Daniel 6, where he's talked about in terms of Daniel's life and government service that Daniel served all the way up to Cyrus's reign. And of course, he appears here in our passage. That's the first king, first Persian king. That second king, his son Cambyses, well, there's not anything in the Bible explicitly connected to him, but we have to recognize that some of the Jews had returned to the land of Israel during his reign. When he was reigning as king of Persia, there were Jews in Israel. Jews who had left Babylon and returned back to Israel. The third king in our list, Galmata, he only served seven months, okay? He's, he's only served seven months. We're going to, there's nothing really to say about him. The fourth king is Darius I. That's different than any of the Dariuses mentioned here in the book of Daniel. This is Darius I. He's not related to Cyrus at all. You can see his reigning dates there on your chart. The most important thing to know about him is that he is the king of Persia when the temple is built and completed. He's the king of Persia when the temple is completed in 515. Remember, the temple was destroyed by Babylon in 60, or excuse me, 586. And it's built again, and it's finished in 515. And Darius is the king who is reigning over Persia when that happens. By the way, interesting fact about Darius, and this has nothing to do with the Bible, but it's just interesting. Darius developed a postal system, a federal postal system, something like the Pony Express. And, and his postal system, they could send a letter. Not, you couldn't send a letter, but the government could send a letter. 1,700 miles in one week. 1,700 miles in one week. That's how good it was. So that's an extra fact. The last king we come to is King Xerxes. He's the son of Darius I, the guy we just talked about, the Ahasuerus of the book of Esther. He dealt with resistance to building the temple. He's mentioned in Ezra chapter 4, verse 6. He had a man who worked for him called Mordecai. Mordecai was Esther's uncle. Esther's uncle. We know of Mordecai, not just from the Bible, but his name appears in the documents connected with Xerxes' reign. Mordecai, one of his government workers, appears in those documents. 
his queen, Xerxes' queen, is a mistress. A mistress. Not a mistress. A mistress. That's his queen's name. This is Vashti of Esther. Queen Vashti of the book of Esther. Furthermore, the book of Esther testifies to the fact that as it's recording the history of what's happening with Esther and Mordecai and the Jews and Ahasuerus, it testifies to the fact that between chapter 1 and chapter 2, there is a gap of time. And in this gap of time, Xerxes is over attacking Greece. So it testifies to the gap of time. It doesn't testify to Xerxes' activities, but it testifies to that exact time. So this is the kingdom of Persia. This is what fits in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, and this is future from Daniel's perspective. Now, next week we're going to talk about the kingdom of Greece. But as we conclude here on the kingdom of Persia, I want to bring you in on a conversation that uh, happened last week after church, actually after Sunday school, a conversation that Frank Hamrick and I were having. And this conversation deals with the Lord's purpose in prophecy. What his purpose is in prophecy. Why does God give prophecy? And it deals with King Cyrus, the first king of the Persian Empire. So I want you to take your Bible and turn back to Isaiah. Back to Isaiah, and Frank and I were talking about chapter 45. I want you to go back to chapter 44. Isaiah chapter 44. It's in this passage that it reveals to us the purpose of prophecy. The purpose of prophecy. So I'm just going to start in verse 1 of chapter 44, and I'm going to read down through here, and I'm going to emphasize several things. So I want you to follow along and listen, then I'm going to go back and I'm going to highlight a few things here quickly. In verse 1, this starts by giving us the Lord's message to Israel. Verse 1. Yet hear me now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord. You'll see how often that phrase is repeated. Thus says the Lord, who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. They will spring up among the grass like willows by the watercourses. One will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name Jacob. Another will write with his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name Israel. 
Verse 6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Now, this is a prophetic thing. Who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me. Since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show me these to them. Let them show these to them. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declare it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. And now in verse 9, for a good portion of the rest of chapter 44, the Lord's going to address the idolatrous practices of the Jews, and he's going to address the fact that it's irrational, it's nonsense. doesn't make sense what they're doing. Okay, so keep that in mind. Verse 9. Those who make an image, so that's a carved image, all of them are useless. Their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Who would form a god or mold an idol that profits him nothing? Surely all his companions would be ashamed. And the workmen, they're mere men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yet they shall fear. They shall be ashamed together. The blacksmith with his tongs works one in the coals. One idol in the coals is what's understood here. Fashions it with a hammer and works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, he is hungry and his strength fails him. He drinks no water and is faint. The craftsman stretches out his rule. He marks one out with chalk. He fashions it with a plane. He marks it out with a compass and makes it like the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. He cuts down cedars for himself and takes cypress and oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine, and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for a man to burn. Talking about this wood that was just mentioned. It shall be for a man to burn. He'll take some of that wood, he'll take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire. With this half, he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his carved image. He falls down before it, for it and worships it, prays to it, and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. 
they do not know nor understand. For he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. And no one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I have also baked bread on its coals. I have roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the rest an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul, nor say there is not a lie in my hand. So God's basically saying there's more benefit for cutting down a chunk of wood, burning it on a fire, cooking with it, than it is to make a carved image. But this is what they're doing. Verse 21. Remember these... Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. Did you catch that? You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions, and like a cloud your sins. Return to me. For I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth in singing, you mountains, O forests and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of the babbler and drives diviners mad, who turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolishness. Who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers? Who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. To the cities of Judah, you shall be built, and I will raise up her waste places. Who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. Who says to Cyrus, to Cyrus, he is my shepherd he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, You shall be built into the temple. Your foundation shall be laid. Chapter 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed. That word anointed is the word Messiah. Thus says the Lord to his Messiah. Now, who is the Messiah here? Look at what verse 1 says. To Cyrus, God has anointed Cyrus, whose right hand I have held to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open doors before him, uh, double doors so the gates will not be shut. I will go before you, Cyrus, and make the crooked places straight. I will break into pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I give you, Cyrus, the treasures of darkness and the hidden riches of the secret places. 
in order that I'm going to do all these things. I've anointed you. I've selected you. I've raised you up. I'm going to do all these things so that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name and the God of Israel. Verse 4. For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel my elect, I have even called you, Cyrus, by your name. I named you, though you have not known me. Because he's not alive. I am the Lord, there is no other, there is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me in order that they, that's talking about the Jews, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Rain down, you heavens from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up. Let them bring forth salvation, and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who formed it, What are you making? Or shall your handiwork say, he has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, what are you begetting? Or to, his, to, to the woman, what have you brought forth? Verse 11, thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker, ask me of things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands. You command me. I have made the earth and created man on it. I, my hands, stretched out the heavens and all their hosts I have commanded. I have raised him up, that Cyrus, up in righteousness. And I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and let my exiles go free. Not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. Now, you notice in here, over and over again, it says, thus says the Lord. So no doubt, this is God speaking. Secondly, we notice that God is saying that he has the right and power to do things because he's the creator. He is the one who created. It's all through this passage. He's the creator. Thirdly, we see there's an emphasis on his prophetic pronouncement several times in here. He mentions about saying things that happen before they happen. And that makes him different than anybody else. He even asks the question, who can do this? I'm the one who does this. God's the one who makes prophetic pronouncements. Over and over again, we see that he says, I alone am God, there is none besides me. No graven image can replace God. No graven image can be beside God. The Lord alone is God. And we see the purpose of prophecy. If you look back to chapter 45, verses 1 through 3, you see here the Lord talking about Cyrus says, I've held your right hand to subdue nations before him. 
and to loose the armor of kings. God put Cyrus in place. He made him the leader of a nation to open him the double door so the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make a crooked places straight. I will break the pieces of the gates uh, into pieces, the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I give you treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places. At the end of verse 3, God does all these things for the purpose that Cyrus may know that I, the Lord, call you by your name. I am the God of Israel. God does that so Cyrus will know the one who put him in there is not his gods. It's not some graven image. It's the God of Israel. This is Cyrus in our passage in the book of Daniel. Secondly, if you drop down to verse 6, this also connects to the children of Israel. God says to Jacob, I'm going to do all these things for Cyrus. In verse 6, it says, so that God's going to do these things for the purpose that they, the children of Israel, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting, there is none beside besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. So what's the purpose of prophecy? The purpose of prophecy is to reveal God. God reveals himself as the one true and living God in prophecy. And prophecy is meant to show people who God is and for them to acknowledge that he alone is God, the Lord, the God of Israel. That's why we have prophecy, to know God and to respond properly to him. So we're studying this prophecy. It's not just information. This prophecy is telling us about God, and it's calling you to acknowledge He alone is God, and there's no other besides Him, and that you should acknowledge Him and serve Him. Won't you stand with me, and we'll close in a word of prayer. Lord, we give you thanks for your word. We're so thankful that uh, if we take the time to look at it, we take the time to meditate on it, it explains itself. And we're so thankful not only for our passage in Daniel, where we see you in a prophetic way unfolding history before Daniel's eyes. Daniel doesn't hasn't experienced any of this, but you're showing to him what will happen. And Lord, we look back and see what you said and know that it happened exactly how you said it would happen. And Lord, not only is it predictive prophecy, but fulfilled prophecy teaches us you are the Lord, you are the only God, and there's no one beside you. Help us to live according to that truth, that you alone are God. You alone deserve worship and none other. Father, be exalted with your word. Be exalted as your spirit takes it and applies it to our hearts. And Lord, if we are struggling with idols in our heart, may we be convicted today and understand that you alone are God and deserve the first place 
in our hearts and minds. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.